What are the results of justification? Among other things, a promise of exemption from divine wrath. Let's talk about that next on Truth For Today. The results of justification, they are many. Among them are the promise that we will be exempt from divine wrath. What that means is laid out for us here today on Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard from Valley Bible Church here in Hercules. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. The penalty that you and I deserve meted out to Jesus and therefore divine wrath is bypassed for us if we rest ourselves in him. For more on this wonderful truth, let's catch up with our teacher and pastor, Phil Howard, for today's broadcast. Turn, if you will, to Romans 5. Let's continue the journey about if you've been justified by faith, what does that really mean? Paul is unfolding this. Let's get our terms down since people forget what justified means. It is a a Latin word that comes back to the Greek word, to be declared righteous by God. It is involved, the first four chapters of uh, Romans, Galatians, uh, all of the New Testament rides on whether you understand this concept. If you don't understand this, uh, you don't understand the implications of your salvation. God has saved you. And when he did that, he declared you to be right before him because his son took away all the offense, everything that would keep God from ever forgiving you, Christ paid for. And in return, he gave you as a gift Christ's very righteousness to your own credit, simply by believing in Jesus Christ. And so today we want to pick up verses 9 through 11, but let me begin with verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, so he's talking to believers for sure, isn't he? Since you have been justified, if you haven't been, nothing he's going to say is yours. If you have put faith and you've been justified, the rest is yours. One, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is over. Two, You have a permanent standing in divine favor through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now permanently stand. We stand and we remain standing. And we also have the prospect of the glory of God and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Notice hope through this section. Not only so, But we also rejoice in our sufferings because there's a purpose for our pressures. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And this hope does not disappoint. It will not shame you. It will not fail to be what you hoped in. Why do you guarantee it? How can you guarantee it? He says, I guarantee it on the basis that the one who gave you the hope is the one who has loved you deeply in Christ. The giver of the promise is the one who's loved you deeply. And hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. 
And then he goes on to describe this love. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved, future, from God's wrath through him? Because of what happened in history, the cross of Christ, and you have believed it by faith, and its benefits have been applied, is it good enough for my past? What about my future? Here, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if and since, really, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What about my future now that I've been justified by faith? What about my future? I reading a book, and I read this excerpt by Irwin Lutzer, the pastor of Moody Bible Church, he wrote a book on the doctrines that divide, the things that uh, Christians fuss about. And his chapters, Can a Person Ever Be Lost Who Put Faith in Christ? And he quotes Daniel Winden, an American theologian and recognized spokesman for Methodism, that wrote, In full consistency with the doctrine of human freedom and responsibility, which pervades our theology, we maintain that inasmuch as we were free in first performing the conditions of salvation, so we are free in the continuance or cessation of their performance. He said that time and again we shall be tested as to whether or not we will hold fast our initial commitment. Some will and some won't, which means those who were justified at once can eventually lose it. Roman Catholicism teaches that you're justified by faith at the baptism font. That's why they insist on their babies being baptized. You're not justified until baptism. There's a problem, though. If you commit anything known as venial or mortal sin. Mortal sin kills the soul. And only an indulgence or the intercession of an earthly priest may get you forgiveness for that. A venial sin or one of those smaller sins and you need to go to confession. But you lose your justification if, if and when you commit your first sin after baptism. Dr. Ironside, who is also a pastor of Moody Church, uh, Claim said he met a man that had been saved 99 times. Actually, as the man told him, if you believe you lose your salvation every time you sin, I'm surprised it wasn't 999 times. We can sympathize with that pastor who told the drunk who got saved every Sunday. 
Next week, I ought to shoot you right after you get saved so that you'll be sure to go to heaven. That is a little extreme. You took Jesus, boom, you're going to heaven. Um, other Arminian views, those that would be not Calvinistic, uh, they would say that uh, willful sin can end this salvation. If you refuse to confess a sin and you die in that, you could be lost. Uh, and of course, the, the major one I grew up in schools had taught, all these other ones won't do it, but if you commit apostasy, whatever that is, if you renounce everything that you know about Christ, uh, then you would be lost. And I would be inclined to agree. I just don't, I would doubt that they ever knew him. But that's debatable. That's why Christians are divided over issues. I um, went up, I just wanted to relook at uh, Lorraine Botner's book on Roman Catholicism, and I looked up the doctrine of purgatory when I thought about divine wrath and the future. The Roman Catholic Church has developed a doctrine in which it is held that all who die at peace with the church, but who are not perfect, must undergo penal and purifying suffering in an intermediate realm known as purgatory. Only those believers who have attained a state of Christian perfection go immediately to heaven. All unbaptized adults and those who after baptism have committed mortal sin go immediately to hell. The great mass of partially sanctified Christians dying in fellowship of the church, but who nevertheless are encumbered with some degree of sin, go to purgatory where for a longer or shorter time they suffer until all sin is purged away, after which they are translated to heaven. Mortal sin has meant a grave offense against God's law, and it kills the soul. And as you read through what they say on this, even popes go to purgatory. Uh, the Roman Catholic people are taught that the souls of their relatives and friends in purgatory suffer great torment in the flames, that they are unable to help themselves, that not even God can help them until his justice has been satisfied, and that only their friends on earth can shorten or alleviate that suffering. Purgatory is supposed to be under the special jurisdiction of the Pope, and it is his prerogative as the representative of Christ on earth to grant indulgences, relief from suffering as he sees fit. This is exercised directly by the Pope, but as I read the doctrine through church history, even the Pope may have to go for a while to purgatory to be fit for heaven. Truly in their documents they say that. Roman Catholicism, Lorraine Botner. Leo X, needed to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica, and he sent Tetzel in the north to go to the barbaric, peasant-like people known as Germans. They were the barbarians. But they had some outstations up there in Wittenberg, and they had a guy named Luther who was pastoring and teaching at the University of Wittenberg, happened to be teaching Greek in both Romans and Galatians. And when Tetzel came selling indulgences to pay money to shorten the time of your loved ones in purgatory, 
Tetzel came up with a little rhyme that went something like this. Uh, St. Peter, as soon as he hears the coin ring, another soul from purgatory springs. And they went up. That was the little motto. And they raised thousands of dollars to build St. Peter's Basilica, which was buying money because the Pope was forgiving time in purgatory. Well, of course, this, uh, this wild boar in the vineyard of the Lord, as the Pope called him, wrote 97 theses that said, it is a shame to say any man can forgive sin. It is a shame to think that any fires of hell could be alleviated by anything any man can do on the earth. And thus a reformation was started in which it said this doctrine, this justification by faith doctrine says it guarantees your future. It guarantees your future. Because what the theology say is Christ does not do enough in his cross work to pay for the failings, the backslidings of those who even begun with him. Uh, enough has not been done. And of course, Rome says that over and over. It is not enough that Christ died. It is not enough. Therefore, we must exact more penalty, more pain, and only payment to an earthly priest can alleviate it. This is not a blast on Catholicism. I am quoting what they teach. Now, we come to Romans. He has said something about the wrath of God, and I want to explain several things. I want us to review quickly, not exegetic. I'm going to just show you the verses, why God's angry with man. Which this is be reviewed. You've already memorized it. Two, I want us to see the kinds of wrath that God pours out, at least five kinds of wrath God pours out on the earth. And then I would like to show you from Scripture a divine principle that God has a way of protecting his own from his own wrath. Follow with me back in Romans 1. That's about three pages to your left. Notice how this book began. 118. The wrath of God the anger of God, not uncontrollable, but a righteous anger, not a moody anger, not the gods of the pagans, but a God who has a settled response to evil and everything against him and unlike him. The wrath of God is presently being revealed from heaven against two categories, the godlessness and the unrighteousness is the idea. The wickedness is unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Two grand categories. They are ungodly, meaning they will not revere the true and living God. There's no awe, no respect, no uh, obeisance. They owe this God nothing. And at the same time, they multiply their unrighteous deeds. He develops the argument. He says in verse 18, they suppress the truth that could be known of God. Verse 19, they refuse the revelation God has made of himself. They keep saying, I don't see you. I don't hear you. Where are you? Show up. And he said, my whole creation is shouting. I'm there. I have eternal power. I'm a great, great, great being to have created this. And they say, we reject the evidence. 
Give a blind man more, more information, and he still can't see the colors. He still can't see the trees, and God's dealing with a blind race. They reject the revelation of God. They refuse to honor him in verse 21. They have no time, for although they knew God, they glorified him not as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, moronic. Verse 23, you know, if your, if your husband was going to cheat on you, and he went out and married something twice as ugly as you, that really would be an insult. And that's exactly what the race did. They not only fired God, but in verse 23, they got things a billion times worse than God could ever be. Snakes, animals, trees, stones. It's one thing to be fired, but replace it with something better. And look at verse 23. He says, they, they got rid of this God and they made images like mortal man, birds, animals, reptiles. Come and meet my God. He's slithering over there in a cage. This is your God? This is God's indictment. And then they exchange God's glory for the lie in verse 25, which is, I'd rather worship something that's been created than I would to worship the creator. He says in verse 25, they worship anything but God. They refuse to acknowledge God. They give up an experiential knowledge of God. Rich's favorite term, epigonosco. It's right here. They give up an experiential knowledge of God, so God disapproves them. Chapter 2, look what he says. He says, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? The self-righteous who are critical of other sinners will not escape God's judgment. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience? Notice verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So over and over, Romans has laid down the argument before it gets here. God has a righteous anger. He will pour out wrath. He never apologizes about it. He doesn't have to get through the philosophy department of any university. He is able to do as he pleases. And he said, I will judge sin. Now, how has God in history shown his wrath? There are so many references. I, I do not want to bury you in information. But at least five ways. One, he promises the wrath of eternal separation in the future. Revelation 20, he sentenced the unsaved and he cast them out into outer darkness. That is certainly the wrath of God against sin and sinners. But when we use this term, it's also a term, we call it the day of the Lord. It comes out of Isaiah 13, Joel chapter 2, Amos. It's full of the Old Testament prophets that the day of Yahweh will be a day when he deals with the nations who have rejected his son and when there will be a, a great, great uh, confrontation of the nations in the future and in the day of the Lord. God deals with his enemies, 
And that day of the Lord runs all the way up until he burns up the present universe. For Peter said, in the day of the Lord, I saw the earth melt away with fervent heat and everything. So the day of the Lord is a future time that begins in prophecy, we understand, and will begin when God begins to deal with the uh, earth and will begin to pour out his wrath as described in Revelation 6 through 19. Matter of fact, chapter 6 says it's the wrath of the Lamb that is being poured out. So a future time of prophetic wrath is coming on the earth. Scary time. You hear it called tribulation, great tribulation, the day of the Lord. There's other times that God has shown his wrath in the past. Genesis 6, God looked down on the earth and he said, everything I see going on in the hearts and the imaginations of men is evil continually. I will destroy man whom I have made. But it says, but Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God says, you know what? I'm going to spare you, Noah, you and your family. But he buried this entire earth in a universal flood that covered the earth. I never forget a uh, science man. I forget what field he was in. I was working on a master's program in Denver, and he was a pilot. He said, let me uh, take you. He's big on the uh, earth and early earth and about the effects of the flood. He said, I'm going to go up to the Rockies with you and show you the water lines. And as we flew, he said, I've been right over there. We take shells out of those uh, peaks all the time, eight, 9,000 feet high. You think the flood was local? This whole earth has been inundated with water. The judgment of God has already fallen so that only eight souls survived. Divine wrath has been poured out. What about Genesis 19? Abraham's got a nephew he's concerned about living in the city of Sodom. And God says, I want to burn it to the ground. I'm going to ignite it. And Abram begins to pray, could you get my nephew out? And divine judgment, cataclysmic judgment, fell upon them. So we know in the wrath of God, there's eternal separation. There's the day of the Lord. There's cataclysmic events in time. And then there is a cause-effect, sowing-reaping kind of wrath. In, in essence, God says, if you break my commandments, they will break you. If you break the law of gravity, it's going to break you. I don't think it exists. No, step off a 20-story building. I'm going to do it. All right, you do have a will. You've already talked it over with your wife. It won't hurt me. You cannot break the law of the lawgiver without consequences, a form of his divine righteous anger. The law will not bend to accommodate us. And then the wrath of Romans 1. I will abandon those who abandon me. And the judgment for sin is more sin. When you sin a lot and God abandons you, he'll enable you to do more sin than you ever realize. And it multiplies and multiplies. And pretty soon, Sidon and Tyre are no more. The Philistines are no more. The inhabitants of Canaan are no more. Abraham, I'm not going to bring your descendants into Canaan because it's too dirty a place. Let me eliminate. Nations will come and go at the will of God. 
come and go. I will abandon those who don't want me in various national abandonments. And he can abandon anyone who does not love the truth. So God has been active in displaying his wrath. At least those ways he has acted in history. Our series is simply entitled, The Results of Justification. This is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard, the ministry of Valley Bible Church here in Hercules. Closing out a broadcast today, we would remind you that copies of the broadcast are available. Simply call and request the series, The Results of Justification, and we'll get a copy out to you, or just a simple copy of today's broadcast as well. You can also get these resource materials off of our website, valleybible.org. Here's where to call, 855-833-9864. And we would love to hear from you, especially if you're feeling led to partner with us financially and prayerfully. No gift is too small. To become a TFT sustainer, simply contact us and let us know that you're willing to link arms with us as we continue to minister the gospel of Christ here in the greater Bay Area. You can call 855-833-9864 or stop by valleybible.org. You can also write to us at 1511 M. Sycamore Avenue, Suite 278, Hercules, California. The zip code is 94547. As a TFT sustainer, you'll receive a quarterly newsletter, a once-a-year special gift, and access to Take a Break, which is our weekly video, our devotional video, with Pastor Phil. It's all available when you contact us at 855-833-9864. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard.